Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 2. As we approach Thanksgiving this week, I'm thankful for many things. I'm thankful for something new this week. It's called Skunk Off. It comes in a quart bottle about that big and you pour it on your dog when he has put his nose in where it doesn't belong. See, I am personally wise enough to avoid a skunk, but my dog, Arthur, is not so smart. When your dog brings home something so putrid, you begin to reconsider that whole man's best friend thing. I'm thankful that Skunk Off works to a great degree. Uh, but if you come to our house in the next few months, <laughs> you will notice that it does not work completely. Uh, but I'm thankful that Skunk Off works, and I'm thankful that Arthur is going to be spending this week at the Doggy Hotel. <laughs> That's at the Hughes house, yeah. <laughs> You might have to just stay in that pen the whole time. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Seriously, we have many reasons to be thankful. Many, many. But the greatest reason, I believe, is what we're going to study today in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Talking about Jesus, it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he... Likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There are three characters in these two verses, and we're going to look at this passage from the perspective of those three characters. The first one I have called the diabolical dictator. You notice there that it refers to the devil at the end of verse 14. And there are some notes in your bulletin if that will help you to uh, be able to follow along and, and grab what the scripture is saying. And in there I have put a series of names for the diabolical dictator. And I, I want you to understand a little bit about the devil or Satan because sometimes we get misconceptions about who he is and what he can do and certainly this verse tells us what he cannot do anymore but as we begin to think about him we ought, we need to understand about his identity that the first name given to him was the name given by God which is Lucifer and the word Lucifer is used in Isaiah chapter 14 where he is spoken of by that name, and it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? 
And the word Lucifer means brightness. And then it's modified by son of the morning. We understand that Lucifer was one of the created angels of God, perhaps one of those at the top of their hierarchical structure. He's called brightness, something special. There are other angels, Michael the archangel or ruling angel, if you will. He is called brightness and son of the morning. In Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel, we read of him rebelling against God and desiring to be the ruler in the place of God, and we read of him being judged by God. And so he becomes what Hebrews 2.14 calls him, the devil. Our word diabolical is from this same Greek word diabolos, the devil. It means a slanderer or an accuser. It's used in Job 1 and in Revelation 12.9. Uh, excuse me, in Job 1 and Revelation 12.9, we see him doing this work of slandering and accusing. You remember the story in Job 1. The uh, Bible says that Satan, or the devil, came to God and pointed to Job and said, Look at Job. He only serves you because you give him things. That is Satan accusing or slandering Job to God. And then in Revelation 12, 9, we hear him called the accuser of the brethren. The word brethren there used to refer to us. And so we understand that one of the things he does is go to God and say, look at Dave Lunsford, look what he did this week. And you're still going to let him live? You're still going to let him pastor that church? He accuses us before God. He accuses you before God. He is the devil, he is the accuser, he is the slanderer. And not only that, but if you read Genesis 3 and think about it carefully in light of this line, you, uh, this name, you understand that the devil accuses God to us. What did he say to Eve? He said, Eve, God knows that when you eat from that tree, you're going to be just like him. He's trying to keep something from you. That is the devil slandering God. And he does that to us today through the world. He accuses God before us. The third name of the devil is Satan. And the word Satan means an adversary. And that is what he is called many times. He is our adversary. He is the adversary of God. He opposes anything godly, and that includes us. Then there are three other names used of him not as often one of them is the great dragon. Certainly the, the imagery of a dragon is that of something ferocious. He's called the serpent of old. And we know that when he tempted Eve, he uh, possessed, if you will, the body of a serpent. And the scripture says the serpent was more subtle than all the beasts of the field. So we understand that perhaps the serpent indicates craftiness or subtlety. And then he's also called the enemy. And the root word from the word enemy means hated or hater. So those are some of the names given to him. And I think we understand who he is basically by those names. But let me just say a couple things that he's not. And you need to understand this if you never have. Sometimes we get images in our mind and they're not right. Satan is not the dark god. There's a difference between being a created being and being... 
a God or a powerful being in terms of possessing power in and of yourself. Satan only has power because God created him and gave him power initially as a created angel being, and then Satan corrupted that power that God gave him. And we also understand from Job chapter 1 that Satan is limited in what he can do. God does allow him to do some things, and we'll look at that more in a minute. But Satan is not the dark God. There is not Satan and God on an equal line, the God of darkness, the God of lightness, and these two gods fighting with one another, and we are their beings. That is not the case. There is one God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that God created angelic beings, and one of them, named Satan, led a third of those angels to rebel and to defect. They are created beings. They are limited in power. They are limited as to their place of existence. If Satan is here today, he's not over there. You need to understand that. And that's why I think we're on pretty good ground when we say most of the time Satan is not tempting you because he just cannot be everywhere at once. He is a created being as you and I are created beings. He is powerful. We don't know how fast he can move, just like we don't know how fast angels move. But they are limited by space and time in, in ways that are different from us, but they are limited, and he is limited. His activity. Look here at Hebrews 2. I believe one of the greatest activities of Satan that we understand here in Hebrews 2, verse 14, is the activity of intimidation. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, Jesus himself shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now we read there that Satan has the power of death. Does that mean he can kill people at will? No. Many years ago in a church that I was part of, uh, a young a mother in that church died suddenly for no apparent reason, and the autopsy found no medical cause for her death. Like it would be similar to a sudden infant death syndrome. There, there's almost no evidence of anything going wrong in the body whatsoever. She died suddenly. Shock to all of us. And as I was getting my hair cut that week, talking to the barber who was a Christian of a more fanatical sect, shall we say, he told me that he believed she had dropped her guard and Satan got her. Because that's what he believes about everybody. That you have to be on your guard and when you drop your guard, Satan gets you. Well, you know, that's his idea, but it's not God's. Because Job chapter 1 shows us very clearly that Satan wanted to get at Job. But all he could do was come to God and accuse him. And God decided to teach Job a lesson and to teach Satan a lesson, and so he allowed Satan certain reign. But we even see that at a, a notch at a time. He said, okay, Satan, you can do this. And then he said, you can do that. And eventually Job lost everything he had, and his body was covered with sores. And, and we think, oh, that's a terrible thing. And yet God was involved in an important exercise, and that was demonstrating to Satan, Satan, you don't know what you're talking about. Job loves me, and he's going to serve me no matter what happens to him. 
And so Satan is controlled. He cannot kill people at will. You do not need to live in fear of Satan. In Matthew, Jesus said this, Do not fear, him who can own, fear them who can kill your body, but fear him who can kill your body and soul in hell. Who is that? That's God. You should have a very sincere and deep, reverent respect for God because he is God and because he controls Satan. This power of death is not the power over death, but he has the power of death. 1 Peter 5.8 says the devil walks about seeking whom he may devour. Satan wants to devour people. There's no doubt about that. In Job, we see God control and allow certain powers. Jesus said to Peter, do you remember this with Peter? Jesus said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But what did Jesus say he did? He said, I have prayed for you. Wow. The prayer of Jesus is more powerful than the sifting of Satan. And Jesus basically said, Peter, Satan wants to, wants to destroy you, but I have prayed for your protection, which when Jesus prays for things, they happen. You know, sort of like when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. When Jesus prays, it's not an if, it's a certainty. Jesus is called our intercessor in heaven. He is before the throne, and when Satan comes along and accuses us, Jesus says, no, no. In the Old Testament, God's law made it clear that if someone took a life, he would forfeit his life. And the entire tone of Scripture indicates that the power of life and death belongs to God alone. And there are times when he allows Satan to have that power. So what is, the power, what is Satan's power over death? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, I believe we, we understand what his power is. And it is the power of, we might say, intimidation. Maybe even more than that. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. It's a great chapter on the resurrection of Christ and of our resurrection. We read these words, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, that is a normal human body, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption, that's what our human body is, it's in the process of corruption because of sin, corruption cannot er inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says, and we shall be caught up and meet him together in the air. Verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does the power of death mean when the Satan has the power of death? It means this, that until Christ died on the cross, Satan had a legitimate claim on the souls of men. It means the scripture says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. 
God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat from the fruit of the tree, literally he said, dying, you shall die. I believe he was speaking of two deaths, physical and spiritual. And so Satan has stood, if you will, at the gate of Hades and paradise, the place where people died and went to either punishment or for good in the Old Testament time. He stood there and said, you're not taking one of these people out of here. They belong to me. And you know what? He was right. Because of their sin, they belong to him. The wages of sin is death. Now God in his mercy atoned for people's sin in the Old Testament. He covered their sin. He put it on hold so that they did not have to go into punishment, but they went to a place called paradise or Abraham's bosom. And Satan stood right there at the gate and said, these people are not going to heaven why? Because their sins are not forgiven. But Hebrews chapter 2 tells us something changed. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But turn with me to Jude, chapter nine, Jude verse 9. There's a little obscure verse here that if you don't connect it with what we're talking about today, you're going you're gonna to scratch your head and maybe come up with the wrong answer. Jude verse 9, all the way almost to the end of your Bible. Jude is a warning about false teaching. And he's talking about the false teachers. And, and a false teacher is somebody who stands up and says, this is God's truth, but in fact, it's not God's truth. They have, they have bent it, they have corrupted it, they have maligned it. And so in verse 8, he refers to these people as dreamers. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, that is, they sin in their bodies, they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Why in the world would Michael the archangel be arguing with Satan, fighting with him, contending with him over the body of Moses? Well, there's several scenarios. Uh, probably the most likely is somehow that when the time came for Moses' sin to be forgiven, that we'll look at in just a minute, somehow Satan is arguing, saying, no, he's mine, he's mine. And Michael says, no, he's not yours. The Lord rebuke you. What I want you to see right there now is that Satan, before Christ died on the cross, had a legitimate claim over people and their eternal destiny because sin was not forgiven. And I believe it would be accurate to say that if you have not believed in Christ as your Savior, when you die, you will go to hell and Satan will have a legitimate claim on your soul. Nobody will be able to defend you. Nobody will be able to say you're wrong. Because of sin, the power of of sin, the results of sin is death. So as our accuser, Satan has made sure, made sure all the way up to the time of Christ that God knew these people could not go to heaven. But Revelation 1.18 tells us something better. It says Jesus has the keys to death and Hades. Satan had the key, but now Jesus has the keys. He is the divine deliverer. He is the second character in this story in Hebrews chapter 2. 
In Hebrews 2, he says that Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Turn with me to John chapter 12, please. We need to understand how Jesus destroyed him. John 12, 27. Jesus is talking and he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour, or take me away from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus is talking about the, the, all of the events that we call the passion, all of the, the events uh, starting with his, arre his, uh, his arrest and his unjust uh, accusations and his beating and then the crucifixion and the death. He's saying, what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour? But this is why I came. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. He said, that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, Father, glorify yourself. It, just as a sidebar, folks, when you don't know what to pray, that's what you should pray. When you, when you think, should I pray for deliverance? And you think, I don't know if God wants to deliver me from this. Just say, Father, glorify yourself in my life. That's what Jesus said. He goes on, then a voice came from heaven. In other words, God audibly answered him. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, he answered the people and he said, folks, this voice did not come because of me. This voice came for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. What does that tell us, folks? That tells us that when G Jesus is predicting, he says, when I come to my hour, which is the hour of crucifixion, not, not the hour, but the time frame, he says, when I come to these events and when I accomplish this, this great death, burial, and resurrection that's going to become, now the ruler of this world will be judged, will be cast out. What's it mean, cast out? Well... We don't have time to look at all of the truth about Satan, and, and in fact, in some ways, I don't even want to preach about him other than to make sure you know the truth. But what we find in the Old Testament, in, this, in, in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel, when they're talking about him in a prophetic figure, looking at a couple of human figures and him together, we hear about this, this event in, in time past, probably before this world was created. And it says God judged him and cast him out. But what we understand is that that, that perspective is, is a long time frame. We don't know exactly how much access Satan has to God, but we know that he still has access. But we know there's coming a day, and that day is going to be at the beginning of Christ's literal reign on earth for a thousand years when it says that Satan will be bound in chains in hell for a thousand years. And then at the end of that time, the scripture says he's going to be loosed to revolt and rebel one more time and to lead the unbelievers of the world in revolt and rebellion against God. And then after that, all of them and him will be judged and cast into the lake of fire forever. And then that's it. When Jesus died on the cross, he signed the death warrant of Satan. Now, has the death warrant been executed? No, it has not. And in fact, when we read this verse that says in Hebrews 2 that says Jesus destroyed the devil, it does not mean like 
ground him to powder and threw him away. What it means is it made him inoperative or it took away his power. He will never be destroyed, but he will be made to be punished in, in hell forever and ever. His control has now been divinely limited and taken away, and eventually it will be completely done away with in terms of his power. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. In Luke 11, I believe Jesus tells a parable which is teaching through a story, if you will, that really summarizes this whole business for us. Luke 11, 20. He was accused of casting out demons through the power of Satan. In other words, they said, you're one of Satan's angels or one of his you know, people. Verse 20, he says this, But if I cast out demons with, with the finger of God, in other words, he says, I'm saying I'm doing it with the finger of God, and if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger man than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoils. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, folks, I, I'm not casting out demons by the power of Satan. He says, in fact, Satan is a, a strong man guarding his house, and all of his goods are at peace. They're all there. Nobody disturbs him. He says, but when a stronger, it doesn't say stronger man, literally, it just says a stronger, because Jesus is, is more than a man. It says, when a stronger person comes along, he basically conquers that person and takes everything he has. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for our sin, and Satan had no more ground to stand on in accusing us before God. He certainly does go and accuse, I have no doubt about that, but when he does, Jesus says, excuse me, that person's sins are forgiven. The blood has covered them. There is no place to accuse. Listen to this quote from an author commenting on this passage. Proclaiming the crucified Jesus to be the conqueror of death and asserting, like our author, the author of Hebrews here, that by dying he had reduced the erstwhile lord of death to impotence. The keys of death and Hades were henceforth firmly held in Jesus' powerful hand, for he, in the language of his own parable, had invaded the strong man's fortress, disarmed him, bound him fast, and robbed him of his spoil. 1 John 3.8 says this, Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son. 2 Timothy 1.10 says, Jesus abolished death and brought immortality to light. When Jesus died on the cross, he finished the work of forgiveness so that when we come in faith on him, God removes our sin from us, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. God will never hold our sin against us, and in fact, nobody else can hold our sin against us either. Back in Hebrews 2, we read about the third character in this play, and that is the delighted defendants. That's us. He says, Jesus rendered the power of Satan inoperative 
And he released those who through fear of death had all their lifetime been subject to bondage. What we understand here is that our mortality controls us. When I was in Seattle, I worked with a, a, on a particular team of, that had a lot of health, uh, excuse me, mental health professionals. And one of those mental health professionals was a professional death educator. Use the term thanatologist. That's the Greek word for death and, and then study of. She did seminars, did personal work and counseling about grief and whatnot. She tried to teach people that death is a natural phase of life. It should be embraced. A person's life should be celebrated. You know, all of those things that we've heard so much about. Some of it sounds good. But you know what I want to say today? Death is not a natural part of the life God designed. When God created Adam and Eve, did he say, now Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful, multiply in the garden here. Now you're going to live here for about 900 years and you're going to die. No. He said, in fact, Adam and Eve, the only way you will die is if you sin. That's it. And then after they sinned, what did he do? He banished them from the garden so they would not have access to all the things that he had provided, which one of them might have been things that would perpetuate their life. Death is not a natural part of life. When you shun, when you run from it, in part, I believe you are acting in accordance with your creation. God did not intend for us to die. It should be natural for us to want to live. It's natural for us to want to extend the life of people around us. There is a righteousness to that. But there is also an unrighteousness to letting our mortality control us. Death came to the human race as a result of sin. It is the divine punishment for sin. And as such, we fear death because we were not created to die. This is why people don't want to talk about wills and funeral arrangements ahead of time, even when they are terminally ill and all of their loved ones are thinking, come on, this is going to happen. We've got to talk about it. No, I don't want to talk about it. You've been there. This is why people refuse to speak about death. You ever been around somebody who does that? As soon as they say something it could be bad, like a, you know, like I hope I don't fall down when I walk off the platform, you gotta knock on wood right away because I think knocking on wood's gonna save me from the predicament that's coming. And those same folks will not speak about death because it might happen. If you haven't been around them, you will. This is why people scream and cry and rage at God and man alike when their loved ones die. This is why funerals are often poorly attended. This is why some people don't go to the doctor because they don't want him to tell them they're sick because if he doesn't say it, it might not happen. This is why people don't know how to speak to someone whose loved one has died. Because in truth, they don't even want to talk about death. 
in my experience, this is why there are chaplains in the police department and the fire department, because unsaved firefighters and police officers, as great as they are at doing their job, don't want anything to do with grief, because that's about death. Do you understand when it says we have been held hostage? We have been subject to the fear of death all our lifetime. Subject to bondage. My friend, the thanatologist, smiled and talked about how natural death was until her significant other died. And she developed a significant substance abuse problem and the last that I knew, she was asked to leave the team that I was on because she had ceased to be able to function in a productive manner. Folks, you can explain death any way you want, but the only way that works is God says it's not natural, it's because of sin, and if you want to be delivered from it, it's free. Jesus has conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. And you can have that victory. On our own, human beings are under bondage to the fear of death, but we're not on our own. Because Hebrews 2.15 says we have been released by Jesus. We've been released. I've never been in jail as a prisoner. I've been there to visit some folks. And uh, in the jail that I went to to visit people fairly often, I had to go into a locked room. I had to go into a room, they locked the door, and then they would push the button, and I would get in the elevator, and I would go up, and it would get off of my floor, and then I would be in a locked room with no access except the elevator and a, and a locked door, and the prisoner would come in and sit on the other side of the glass, and we would talk with the telephone. And when I wanted to leave, I had to go and stand and look so the guard could see me, and he would allow me to go in the elevator, and then I would come down, and I'd look so the other guard could see me and push the button so the door would open and I could be outside. And I'm telling you what, I love to be outside. That's as close to jail as I ever want to get. And I'm so thankful that when I was four years old, God freed me from the bondage of the fear of death. I'll be honest with you, I don't even know what it's like to live with that, except by observation in other people. It's so wonderful to know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. Now, I don't want to die soon. Some days, you know. And I understand when people get in despair because of physical... Oh, we, we can get into such pain and such difficulty that we think, oh, I just want to die and go home. And I'm not sure that's all ungodly. <laughs> in fact, Paul talks about it in Romans. He says, the whole creation groans, waiting to be delivered from this mortal life. Oh. But I've been released. 1 Corinthians 15 says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Turn with me to Romans 8. I hope Romans 8 takes on a new light for you today. Because this Romans 8 is about the deliverance we've just been studying in Hebrews. 
Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you understand that now in terms of Satan the accuser? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with Jesus also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's you and me. He says, do you think Satan's going to make any headway with God, making a charge against us? He says, it's, it's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. That's a word for prayer. Remember how I said Satan, Jesus prayed for Peter? He says, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm going to pray for you. Jesus is praying for us. He intercedes for us with God. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, that's Satan, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you understand that passage now? Satan's got no claim on us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have been delivered from that bondage. What should that deliverance do for us? Well, Romans 14, 8 says this, For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we are the Lord's. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. What's the worst thing that could happen to you today? Well, let's just say that dying is the worst thing that could happen. Well, what happens then? You blink your eyes and there's Jesus standing in front of you. Well, is that such a bad thing? I don't think so. Now, I understand we have this drive to live. It's, it's, it's from God. But are you fearing death today, friend? You shouldn't be. Should, hey, if I live, I'm the Lord's. If I die, I'm the Lord's. It's okay either way. The Apostle Paul struggled with this. He desperately wanted out of this life. Man, that guy was beaten and shipwrecked and terrible things for the gospel. And he said, boy, I want to go home and be with the Lord. But then he said, you know, you folks need me here to share the word of God with you. And he said, I'm, I'm torn. And then he said, I think it's more important to stay. But that was not his personal desire. It was what he believed was God's mandate from him. But you, did you notice in those two things, there's no fear? He's not afraid of living. He just desires to be with the Lord. Christ's victory over the devil and our guaranteed place in heaven should give us great peace when facing the greatest trial of life, those that, that that involves our death or the death of, of loved ones around us who know the Lord. Like Paul, we should be saying and thinking and believing these words from Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Our Thanksgiving is going to be a little heavier this year than usual. Um, Sue's sister, who is just about 55 years old, just learned this week that she's got about a year to live, maybe less. She's, uh, she has pancreatic cancer for the second time, which is quite a feat in and of itself. 
this next year is going to be a long goodbye. Some of you have been through it. I, I never have. I don't know what to expect. And while the thought of Donna not being with us next Thanksgiving is really kind of an unreal, hard-to-imagine possibility, it's not a scary one. Because Donna is headed for heaven. She's going to be delivered from the body of suffering that she's had for some time. The trials of her life will be ending. And her indescribable joy will begin. And that is the real heart of thanksgiving. I'm thankful for my wife and children and my dog and my house and my calling of God to be here with you. But none of it compares to the joy of sins forgiven and heaven guaranteed. Are you living in that freedom this week? Or are you still living in the bondage of death? May God help us live in the freedom he's given us. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You have freed us from the devil and his demons, from their control. They have nothing to say about us because you are our God. Jesus is our Savior. The Holy Spirit is our power. Father, help us to live in that freedom this week. I pray for anybody here who might be struggling with the fear of death. May your word instruct and comfort and change their heart. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.